You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. And for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you inspired and focused to continue your rules-based investment journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger a bit of curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. For example, like my midweek episode with Mahendra Sharma, who turned, who returned to the podcast after five years to share some of his market predictions for 2021, which some may find outrageous, to be frank, just like when he back in February of 2009, where I think the Dow was trading around 6,000, 7,000, he predicted it would go to 32,000. And, um, well, we're pretty close now. Anyways, Moritz, good to be back with you. How are things in lockdown country? Uh, yes, good to be back with you as well. Uh, how are things? We are in that partial lockdown. It is, um, it is what it is. It's really, you know, I'm frustrated that the skiing is going to be so difficult slash impossible this year. It's an activity that we like to do as a family. I love it. And... Um, so, so this is uh, this is not good for the 2020 2021 skiing season. Uh, but other than that, uh, healthy, no fever, everything's fine. Can't complain. That's the most important thing. I will say, this year certainly it seems like a big advantage to be uh, living in Switzerland since uh, the Swiss have not closed their ski resorts. It's not quite exactly as usual, but it is still possible to uh, get a little bit of snow under your belt, so to speak. Anyways, this week, for those of you who uh, don't follow your Italian bonds, the five-year Italian bonds joined the approximately 17 trillion of sub-zero yielding bonds at the same time as a new report actually from SOCGEN suggested and, and actually went into the influence that QE has had since 2009, where bond prices, I should say bond prices, have driven stock prices rather than the other way around. And then they go on to say that before QE, US equities were more often the driver of US bonds as investors would buy more or sell a few bonds in response to a risk-off, risk-on signals provided by the equity complex. And this causality has completely changed since QE. And they go on to say that since 2009, the cumulative impact on the different waves of QE on the 10-year U.S. Treasury has approximately been 180 basis points. In other words, in a more or less free market, the U.S. 10-year note would trade around 2.8% or thereabouts in yield compared to the sub-1% right now. And as to equities, without QE, the NASDAQ 100 would be closer to 5,000 rather than 11,000, and the S&P should be closer to 1,800 rather than 3,500 or 600 as we are now. Overall, we see that large caps have benefited the most from the ever lower interest rate environment resulting from QE. So one could certainly argue that 
these unnaturally low bond yields that we have experienced during the last decade or so have turned savers into speculators and speculators into respectable day traders. However, our good friend Matt, who works with one of our former guests, Eric Crinton, he did remind me yesterday that new decades often usher in in some form of a new paradigm shift that takes years for market participants to adjust to. The 1980s were very different from the 1970s. The 2000s were nothing like the 1990s. No one needs to be reminded that the 2010s were not like the 2000s. Perhaps 10 years from now, in the rearview mirror, it will show a decade of rising commodity prices, soaring interest rates, and debased fiat currencies. In other words, could 2020 or could the 2020s be a lot different from the 2010s? The answer is it's likely yes. And of course, we as systematic trend followers, we will be around and prepared for that. So, Moritz, I know this episode today might be a little bit all over the place. We've got quite a few interesting things to talk about. But first and foremost, we need to start where we always do, which is to talk a little bit about the re- the week, what happened or what didn't happen for that matter. <laughs> yeah, happy to do that. Um, I had about a flat week, four basis points positive. I'm now 4% negative for the year. What I did notice is that Compared to the past couple of weeks where I've reported that not really much has been moving, like the equities didn't move that much, now they're moving higher again, the bonds didn't move much, etc., etc. But this has now changed. I'm really seeing more movement in a variety of markets in my portfolio, producing bigger P&L swings. And so, you know, looking back on last week, some of the notable winning positions that I've had is uh, short coffee. Long emissions, that's the carbon emissions contract, which, by the way, I've had a long position in for quite some time. It got very close to its stop and, uh, you know, just turned around before I got stopped out, luckily. And it's now, for the first time, settled above 30 euros per ton uh, on the deck 21 contract. So it's, it's, again, a strong uptrend. The same can be said for iron ore. Iron ore, I think, you know, the the trend has just started to accelerate in the past couple of days. It's uh, looking really, really strong. I have a lot of open risk now on that position. So I need to run my systems in more detail this weekend and see, you know, where the the new stops are going to be. But but iron ore is a big, big winner this year for me. And the same is true for canola and some of the other agricultural markets where I've uh, made some good money in the past week. And on the flip side, uh, some of the losers were... Um, long cocoa, long soybean meal. I mean, the soybeans and soybean meal, bean oil, soybeans, they've had a, a great run a couple of weeks ago to the to the upside, but that has stopped a little bit, right? So we're still long and, you know, it was a little bit of a give back on those markets. But other than that, like you said, Niels, uh, we'll be there. We'll just, you know, take our positions, follow the trends, have them on for as long as we need to, get stopped out when we must, and uh, repeat the same process over and over again. Three more weeks to go until the year end with a little bit of luck. Maybe I can scratch the zero. I'm at minus 4% now, as I've said, but it's it's fine. No, absolutely. it It is what it is. And by the way, End of the year is just a, a random twelve-month period, right? So uh, it doesn't it doesn't actually True. mean a lot, even though, of course, we know a lot of investors and 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 so on and so forth will 
judge you based on on calendar years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want to return to some of the things you mentioned there, but before I do so, let me just quickly run what happened on our side. We did see a little bit of an up week on our side, so small gains in December so far, mainly driven really by currencies with the weaker dollar equities as U.S. markets continue to set new all-time highs. Energies, well, I say energies, but I really mean net gas. When 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 we saw the prices this week tumble by ten percent, that was good for our short stance uh, in energies. Um, also, metals. Gold and silver seem to be finding their footing a little bit, so that helped. Bonds and grains were really on our side. The weakest sectors, that's where we saw some losses as both sectors came under some pressure for sure, which, by the way, will maybe come back, uh, at least on the bond side, to some other articles we uh, both saw in the news. In terms of our volatility strategy, it had a little bit of a soft start to uh, December exposure is slightly below uh, average and of course the VIX actually did go lower this week because of we saw higher or uh, all, all-time highs in the S&P but it does still seem somewhat elevated both against historical long terms where I think the mean is something around 17, uh, 17 and a half thereabouts and also uh, especially when you uh, look at where the VIX normally trades when the S&P make a new all-time high, that's actually 14, and we're somewhat above that. And the only time in the past that we've seen such a high level of VIX and the S&P making new all-time highs were during the late 1990s and early 2000s, and of course we all know what happened after that. So yeah, so on 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 that side, uh, some uh, wins made on on short VIX positions, some losses made on long VIX positions, and 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 short S and P positions. So that's really that. But but I wanted to kind of um, float around a little bit on topics today, Moritz, because you talked about some markets that had some impact on your performance. But I noticed that a lot of them were kind of alternative markets, right? Markets that a lot of CTAs won't trade. We certainly don't. And it, it reminds me that when I was running through the performance numbers for November, and we've touched on this during our conversations about should you be trend following new markets, alternative markets, will they give you something that the tra- traditional markets don't offer you right now? And clearly we have seen managers move in that direction and many of them have done quite well. But I did notice that this time around in November, that actually a few of the so-called alternative market funds uh, took a little bit of a beating. So I don't know if you noticed from watching the markets, whether anything that happened that could have called people out a little bit. Maybe it was that vaccine turnaround rally that might have called people out. I don't know. Uh, it just happened to something that I that flagged my eyes when I saw the performance reports because November was, there was a little bit of return dispersion, but it was kind of, a lot of it was plus minus 2%. But then you saw these outliers and few of them were kind of these alternative markets. Um, very good question. There's there's one market where I, you know, did observe a, um, a very strong price action. That's uh, uh, German power. It may actually true for other power markets as well, but, you know, the prices for power increased substantially in the past week the past two weeks maybe even strong strong rally to the top side uh, maybe some of those funds were caught short i don't know but 
I mean, just real quick about, you know, alternative markets. Actually, I think, you know, this is fine for me to disclose. The firm I work for, we're getting ready to trading some of these markets. Um, I don't call them alternative markets, though. I think it's a complete misnomer. A market is a market. And I'm not sure why a market such as power, which everybody is using, is more alternative than soybean meal or canola. I don't get that rationale. And and therefore, I'm not using that word alternative markets. To me, they're just markets. And you can trade them. They're accessible. And it's actually not that difficult to do. If you put in a little bit of homework, then you know you can create relationships with counterparties uh, on the street. Yes, some of those markets do require ISDAs. Most of them do require an ISDA, which means you have to trade them OTC and you have to become... You have to familiarize yourself with the trading mechanics behind that market. Like, for instance, in power, right? I mean, most of the power trading is in the physical markets. As you know, power is very difficult to store, uh, maybe impossible to store on a grid scale basis, right? So it's kind of like in the physical market and you have, this is where the liquidity is. And on the European Energy Exchange, there's only a fraction of the liquidity available, right? So you have to go to where the liquidity honeypot is which means you need to trade OTC, you need to get the data so that you can work with the data. So there's there's work involved. It doesn't come for free. It's not like, you know, downloading the time series for the S&P 500, which everybody can get, and, you know, putting that into a, into a software or Python or Excel and, you know, designing a trend-following trading system on that. You first have to, you know, acquire the data. The same is true for some of the um, OTC FX pairs. It is certainly true for... Uh, onshore China commodities, which, again, you know, there, there's now four markets which can be accessed by international traders because China has freed them up. Uh, you can do that right now. You need to find the right broker, of course, to do that, but they're there, right? And then there is about 20 other markets, 25 other markets that trade on the onshore China commodity exchanges, on the onshore China futures exchanges, I should say, class, styrofoam. PET, steel rebar, eggs, uh, there's all sorts of uh, really diversifying exposures there. But you cannot trade that through interactive brokers or just using the FCM of your choice. You need to have an OTC relationship with a firm that has an onshore China presence and kind of like does a swap on a, on a lookalike futures basis with you. But it's absolutely doable. There's costs involved. You have to get familiar with the trading mechanics, like, you know, how do these things settle? What prices can you trade, et cetera, et cetera? How frequently can you trade? And then there's other markets such as, I don't know, you know, Nordic Power, the emissions contract. Is this really alternative? I don't know. To me, it's just a market. So when we look at these markets, we see very clear diversification benefits to our existing trend following portfolio, which is why we're which is why we started to become nosy about them in the first place. And which is why we're getting close to actually trading in those markets. Why? Because it just makes sense. The numbers make sense. It does improve our risk adjusted returns. It does give us more diversification, stabilizes our portfolio, and allows us to participate in trends where not everybody is yet participating in because not everybody trades in these markets. They are less, some of them are less crowded and therefore they're, um, this is me, you know, making a 
I guess you know, for their trending behavior, they're, they're, they're less noisy because, you know, there's more commercial participation as opposed to like retail participation. By the way, the Chinese futures markets, they are among the most liquid futures markets in the world. We just published a blog on twoquants.com that actually puts it in perspective. Part two has been released. Part three is going to be released this weekend. And it puts the liquidity and the trading volume of some of these of the Chinese futures markets in pers in relation to the volume and the liquidity of, for instance, the U.S. Treasury markets or the DAX future or the Eurostox future. And what you will see is that there's substantially more liquidity in the China futures markets. So they are not alternative. They're like super, super liquid markets. And some of the smaller markets, yes, that may be power, right? But power is only, only smaller if you look at the exchange. Yes, there isn't much volume there. But when you look at the volume of power that's traded in physical markets and that's actually accessible to you if you form the right relationships it's a massive liquidity pool so to me again i don't want to repeat that too many times they're not alternative they're just markets and i think if you know you want to do the work and you want to improve your trend following portfolio get the most diversification out of your positions then you should have a look at that Sure. So let me ask you a couple of questions on that. Obviously, the the markets that require an ISTA that you talked about. Mm -hmm. Back in the 90s, I was putting in ISTA agreements for currencies, believe it or not, because mm -hmm. that was something you had to do in order to get even more liquidity in the currency area. And back then, what ended up being possible was that when you had that relationship, you were able to put a kind of a hop and spoke in place, meaning you would have one central clearer, but you could actually trade your positions with a few different quote-unquote executing brokers so that mm -hmm. you didn't have to go back to the same broker for all your orders because then they might start to read uh, the way you wanted to trade, etc., etc. So let me start by just staying on that topic. So when you talk about alternative markets today where you require an ISTA, mm -hmm. are you able to trade with more than that broker or do you have to do open and close all your trades with the same company depends on the market uh if we're talking fx then absolutely you can trade with the street right uh sure, you're of normally yeah. connected through a multi-dealer platform that's an electronic trading platform like a front end and you can trade hungarian forint against israeli and shekel if that's what you want to do Sure. Uh, I'm thinking the about the alternative commodities that we yeah, were yeah, exactly. talking about but before. So yeah, if, if not a problem, right? And then you just yeah. uh, clear that with whoever your clearer is. On the Chinese futures markets, this is not the case. So you you do open a position with one broker that has the access to those markets, and you do close that same position with that same broker. So it's it's one way, but there's not only one broker available. There's now a couple of houses, a couple of large houses that people would know. I don't think I'm, I should be mentioning their names here on the air, sure, sure. but there's, there's certainly more than one, right? And they're like brand name firms that people would know. And, uh, you know, you can check with them and see what they offer and how they handle it and get comfortable with their service. So I'm going to interrupt you again, Moritz, here, because again, I want to distinguish just for the audience a little bit. So uh, let's leave China aside for a little bit and just mm -hmm. talk about the kind of, I think, more European-based, you talked about power and stuff like that, right? So with those things, I, 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 as far as I know, I'm not an expert here, they are true OTC markets, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And in the in that case, you have as uh, I'm asking here, you would also have the same counterpart. You would have to open and close the trade with the same counterpart here, right? It's not a few. It's not a futures markets, right? Where it's a public market, correct? For power, there's both. You have futures. Oh, okay. uh, there's Felix futures for okay. German base power for monthly, quarterly, and annual contracts. There's the futures market, actually pretty liquid for Nordic power. There's a futures contract for French and Spanish and Italian power. Um, okay. So there's, you know, this this is not this is not a market where there's like absolutely nothing, right? It's just that right. the majority of the liquidity doesn't sit on those futures contracts. It sits in the physical market, right? Right, right, right. And there are players such as Mercuria, right, Macquarie, etc., who have a very big footprint in those markets, and you can actually, you know create relationships, again, is the base, that allows you to trade in their name. So you're just using their infrastructure, their facilities to put a position on, but that position is in their name, but it reflect the PNA reflects on your balance sheet. And by the way, you can also clear that centrally on NASDAQ. There's a clearing solution available on NASDAQ for these type of trades. If you're uncomfortable with your counterparty and the credit risk, then you can centrally clear that through an exchange. So it, that, that's why I'm saying it's um, only because people aren't trading it right now. It doesn't mean that you know those markets are in any shape or form unaccessible or or like you know full of risk or there's only only downside. You know they're they're just normal markets to me. Sure, I take that, and I I think that's a, a, a valid point. I think what I'm trying to get at here is. I think why we call them alternative markets is the fact that they are a little bit more difficult to trade than just your classic futures market, right? That is right. Probably where they're alternative, um, because you're right, Mm -hmm. from the underlying market, if you're trading power or whether you're trading, as you say, you know, canola or whatever it might be, which one is most alternative? I agree with it. Now, moving to China. Yep. So China, you talk about them being futures, and so I imagine that these are onshore futures markets, but we as Westerners, we can only access them through an onshore Chinese broker. So you have to trade with that broker backwards and forwards, but that broker will just simply go to a futures exchange where essentially the market price is transparent, et cetera, et cetera. Is that correctly understood? That is correctly understood. And by the way, you know, there is a couple of houses, including CTAs, Winton comes to mind. I think AHL is part of that. AQR is part of that, which do have onshore presences in China, right? And they have been granted access to these markets. So they're they're trading these markets. Winton for sure does. And they've uh, written reports about it. And they do not need to go through a third-party broker, right? They're there okay. for themselves. Right. So yes, if you have an online, uh, onshore Exactly. Presence. But, you know, then right. it comes with, you know, all sorts of complexities. You have to establish a presence there and have people there, et cetera, et cetera, sure. right? So that only sure. makes sense if you're really, really big. So my my, my question to I you I guess is, where you yeah. want to go with the risk question, it's like... No, no, that's actually not okay. where I'm going to go. I think you, I'm, go, you're gonna, I'm going to surprise you here, Moritz. Because you mentioned this thing that you've done some research and written about the volume of these um, exchanges and how they actually stack up, if you look at the numbers, incredibly well compared to what we know as the US and European exchanges. So my question to you is, if that's the case, you would imagine that a lot of that volume must come from inside China, right? Because these markets haven't Mm -hmm. been open to the outside for that long. So my question is just, 
who do you think have been trading all the, these markets for all these years? I mean, why is China suddenly emerging as this massive futures market and we haven't really heard about it before? I know maybe the people who are really in the nitty-gritty of trend following, we would have heard about it. But the thing about the volume surprises me a little bit. And to be honest, and it's not that I'm against everything that comes from China, but I'm cautious about some of these things when you hear about volume numbers and, and all sorts of things that they um, may be counting them a little bit different than we do. I don't know if I can put it that way. I'm concerned. The thing, what concerns me more is that, yeah, we, we in, search of, in search of yield, right? And we'll come to that in a second. But I, in, in, in my intro, I was talking about five-year Italians that are now sub-zero yield, right? So investors around the world, we have fewer and fewer opportunities to invest in anything that gives something which is also and and plus all the liquidity that's coming into the markets um frankly risk is being taken in some very unusual and to me crazy places uh right now and the worst thing that i think could happen to our space the cta space which is known for its strict regulation and liquid markets and all of that good stuff right that's kind of why we see sometimes CTA is being punished when there's a big crisis because investors know they can rely on us to be a source of liquidity. They can get out of their uh, investments with us and we will honor that, right? Because we trade super liquid markets. And from what you're saying, Chinese markets are super liquid as well. Big volumes. I'm just a little bit concerned that that we see more and more of these newer smaller some some of them certainly more illiquid markets making their ways into CTA portfolios because we do it because we think that there might be some trends that we can make money from the question is just does it come at a cost that we haven't seen yet that's i guess that's what i'm trying to address well we are very careful about you know how we structure those ISTAs and the CSA that is attached to that ISTA and we want to make it very clear that we do have daily liquidity and there's daily collateral being exchanged between the counterparty and the fund. And that collateral is, by the way, in cash. So therefore, if we needed to get out of the position, we can do that every day. And we would have the cash of the yesterday's PL on hand. So that is fine for me. If the Chinese are counting their volumes wrong, I don't know. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I just, you know, I need to to take the volume numbers that I have. And I haven't, you know, done a due diligence on a Chinese exchange. But from the reports and the research that I've read about Chinese futures markets, uh, again, from large broker houses that, that you guys would know, it is a lot of retail participation and it is a lot of commercial participation. There's much less hedge fund and, you know, CTA things going on. But apparently in China, the history, by the way, of the Chinese futures exchanges is uh, hundreds of years. I mean, they're very, very long established exchanges, right? I mean, they had futures exchanges before any of that, you know, stuff like Eurex or Deutsche Terminbörse or, you know, (laughs) we've been very late. The Chinese have been doing that for a very long time. So it, it seems that, you know, retail is trading in these markets. Uh, the notional contract sizes of the markets are comparatively small to the markets that, you know, we would know. 
obviously, if you trade a currency contract here, it's 125,000 euros or dollars contract size, right? It's 100,000 dollars for a bond. It's, uh, you know, some of those contracts are really, really large, so retail wouldn't touch them. But some of the Chinese markets, or most of the Chinese markets, they're relatively small in terms of their leverage. So I guess that that opens the door to retail access. And and that's that. So, yeah, I, you know, we'll we'll give that a try. I think sure. it is an interesting field. We're definitely not the first ones to go down that route. Many funds have done that before us, AHL, ASBAC, Florencourt. When you look at their returns, um, I think there's something that speaks in favor of adding these markets to their portfolios because their funds have been performing really well, with the exception of last month, as you've said, Niels. But I'm not sure what the reason for that is because I'm not yet following these markets every day. So I don't have like the full perspective on daily price moves or monthly price moves on these markets it's simply because there are so many. But yeah, we'll we'll give that a try. And you've just mentioned negative yields, right? You can also trade the Chinese government bonds. They don't have negative yields. No. No. Yeah. They, they, yeah, but that they just uh, issued a euro bond. Did you see that? At negative nine, 16 or 19 basis points. The, the so they're Chinese raising did. money now at negative. Yeah. Yeah. They're raising money now they're at clever, negative huh? yields. By, <laughs> <laughs> and investing in their own government bonds that might yield 4%. That's not bad. Yeah. Just mentioned the, um, was it was it the Italian bond going negative? Or last week we had Portugal going negative and the week before it was Greece. I mean, to me, yes, we, you know, we do take positions on bond futures with our trend following trading systems. And we can speak about in a minute, if you want, about uh, an article that came out on Bloomberg by Nomura where they're... Let's predict- do it now. Yeah, we can yeah. do it. But, you know, if, if, it, if it weren't for the trend following trading system that I run, I mean, for sure... I wouldn't be owning a bond, like a sure. cash bond. I mean, you know, to hold the bond and pay money for it and have the full risk. I mean, of course, it's a government bond. It's, it's a fiat bond, right? They they can devalue it essentially with their printing press. Plus, in an inflationary environment, uh, I'm the one left holding the back. So it is just risk, 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 risk. And there's a negative return for that. So it's, it, you know, I definitely don't want to be long cash bonds, you know, happy to trade them from a trend following perspective with futures, but I'm definitely staying away from the cash side. And yeah. so I've just mentioned the Nomura article. Nomura came out with, and, and this is not the first time, it's not only Nomura, sometimes it's JP Morgan, sometimes it's Sokgen, and you know, Nomura is there and they, they're commenting on what CTAs are going to do the next. If X happens, then CTAs are going to do Y, right? So if the 10-year yield goes to whatever, north of 1.05%. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that number was. Then CTAs need to fully offload all of their long positions and they need to fully go short. And if they do that, then you know the bonds will crash and the yield will go to 120 or 125. Well, to be honest, I don't give much about these articles. The reason is I don't know how Nomura can have a better insight than any of us into how large actually CTA positions are there? They can come up with their guesses, but their guesses nevertheless, right? It is, I think, an impossibility, you know, to really get a good feel for the position size that CTAs have on in the 10-year note. We can look at the AUM, AUM numbers of the industry. They're reported with a little bit of a delay, but 
nobody knows how many trend-following traders are out there. Nobody knows how many internalized big funds are out there that are not even you know reporting into these databases and pools, but they're running trend-following trading systems. And nobody knows how those trading systems exactly work. You know, they're using their naive proxies, proxies. I don't know, two in a day moving average or some simple thing. But we're not all trading in that way, right? I mean, there's funds out there that trade very short term. There's funds out there that trade super long term. The SockGen trend indicator that we just had a look at that morning is long the is long is sorry is short all of the U.S. Treasury futures, the 30-year Treasury futures since about 85 days. I think I saw on that paper, right? I'm not. I've reduced my longs a little bit across the curve in the U.S., but I'm still long. So and and therefore, when they say if the yield goes to X, then CTAs have to offload, and therefore the yield goes to Y. I think this is this is just a far too simple statement to make. I would never make a statement such as that because you just don't know, right? I mean, there may be something else happening at that point in time, some new quantitative easing thing come up or new stimulus come up, and people will just start buying bonds like crazy again, and then the yield doesn't go to one twenty five. So it's, I'm just staying away from these forecasts and I'm not sure what exactly it is that they want to achieve with these trading models. Like who are they helping with that? Who's being helped by that article when they put that out and they say, this could happen hypothetically. Yes. Okay. That could happen. True. And then this might also happen. Okay, fine. But I mean, what, what's now the value add of this, of this article? Well, I think you touch on a, on, on a couple of good points. In particular, the one you made at, at the last here is, you know, who's actually benefiting from, even if they were right, even if they were right, which I don't think they would be, even if they were right, who would benefit from such an article other than to create some kind of hype? And by the way, it's published on Bloomberg, so obviously they have a, a part to play in, in getting this information out. You could, of course, say, well, it's of general inf- it's of general interest to know roughly what CTAs are doing. Maybe so. But but as you rightly say, to put something as uh, concrete as where they write here, after liquidating 65% of long treasury bets since August, systematic players known as commodity trading advisors will dump bullish exposures en masse if the 10-year yield climbs above 1.02%, according to Nomura Holding. I mean, it's very precise. And I think if there's one thing we've learned in the last uh, many decades in uh, in trend following, it's not nearly as precise as saying 1.02% yield in the US and we're going to be dumping our positions en masse. Anyways, I think the, the bigger point is actually this thing about, okay, so what, right? Because even if this was useful for anyone, it's not useful if you don't continue the story and actually have, first of all, some level of transparency as to if you were following these alerts or updates from Nomura, would you make money or not? If not, then they have no use other than creating some kind of hype in the markets or in the in the news flow. Um, but, I, but I agree with you that, you know, it's dangerous to get this narrative out if people misunderstand it or uses it for something that it shouldn't be used for. You're right about the stock gen trend indicator, which actually is a pretty interesting indicator. It's super simple. Uh, I think we worked out there was just two moving averages crossing uh, over. 
And that's way too simple to do trend following anyways. And it hasn't made money for 20 years. So it's not something you would invest in. But as a source of information, it might have some value. But um, uh, let's leave it at that. It's a 2120, it, sorry to interrupt, but it's a 2120 yeah. day uh, moving average crossover. So the thing is either long or short, it's never out of the market at any point in time. Well, what did you say it was in terms of moving average? 20 and 120. Ah, 120. Okay, so 20 days simple moving over averages. 120 days. So yeah. the 20 okay. day simple moving average is a very reactive, very short term moving average, which is why they're already short the bonds and they're short the bonds since, like I've said before, the 30 year, they're short since 85 days, right? They're long all of the energies. I, I'm not yet long all of the energies. So they're they're much more reactive. They're much quicker in changing their positioning. And so uh, this year, they've had a good year. I've just looked at the chart, right? I mean, the short-term trading systems this year have outperformed the medium and long-term trading systems, as we know, Niels, because they performed just so much better in March and April. The, the, of course, you know, the, the past couple of years, they weren't doing so well, but they're also in their returns. And this this I this I really found funny. In their returns for this, in my view, very simple trading strategy that you can easily put together on your Bloomberg terminal or on your on, on a spreadsheet, probably within an hour, you'll be done with that thing. As a 15% volatility control. Oh my God, here we go. I don't like that. But anyway, they're charging two and twenty for that. So they're deducting well, two and twenty for that system, which I think is kind of like yesterday. In in fairness, Moritz, I think. I don't think you can invest in this anyways. They're not selling it. But also, I just think that they're making it so that if you compared it to a CTA's performance, you wouldn't have to adjust for the fees involved. So, But you're right. People obviously probably wouldn't get even close to 220 for a, a, a tracker, let's call it that. But exactly. you make some good points. What I do think, actually, the, the, the article on Bloomberg that Nomura is part of does make an interesting point is they talk a lot about a lot of money flowing into inflation protected instruments i think uh, trackers or etfs or, or something like bonds of some sort and i i remember our conversation a few months ago where we did see from a trend following perspective that a number of the commodities from metals to uh, grains etc cetera, etc cetera, we're starting to break out to the upside and we were getting finally out of some short positions and into some long positions. So that I find actually quite an interesting topic because as I mentioned early on in the, in the introduction, that if we look back 10 years from now and we look back at the 2020s, maybe we will see, you know, huge spike in inflation, massive run-ups in commodities, something completely different to what we've seen in the last 10 years and so on and so forth. So, you know, all information is, of course, something that is good, uh, can give 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 us a, a chance to uh, to talk about it. So um, so we shouldn't dismiss it. But we, I think we just wanted to caution people not to, to think that trend following is so easy that you can say, oh, yeah, I'm going to dump everything I've got at 1.02% at yield. That's not quite how it works. But anyways, it gave us a little bit to uh, talk about. We have one question which we should go to at some point. But you mentioned you had a conversation 
with someone who's been in the news as well. I have to admit, this is outside my expertise because we are now going into the Bitcoin world. <laughs> But if there's something you can share, I don't want to pride on any confidential conversations, but maybe that's yeah. interesting to our Bitcoiners out there. Yeah, so I had the uh, the honor and the privilege to be invited to a virtual lunch with uh, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, who came to fame for many things, I guess, but uh, more recently for his investment of his firm's corporate treasury in Bitcoin. So for him, it was a, a virtual breakfast. For me, it was a virtual late lunch. What do they serve, by the way, when it's virtual? <laughs> it's your own coffee so okay. uh, or your own chewing gum. <laughs> so you're really your own chef here. But, you know, of course, you know, needless to say, he is a massive Bitcoin bull, but he does look at Bitcoin from a different perspective than many, right? A lot of people, they believe that, and, you know, Bitcoin is something else to really everyone I speak to. And for some, it's kind of like the money revolution and it's an alternative to the fiat currencies uh, that we got used to, an alternative to the petrodollar system that we're living in etc 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 for me and i've said this before i think it's more of like an asset container like a storehold of wealth that is digital it's a better form of gold essentially because it doesn't inflate like gold it is more portable than gold it is faster than gold it is easier to store than gold and michael saylor shares a lot of these opinions uh he he does have some other ones but for him it is the ideal treasury asset if you want to just you know preserve wealth and have a container that you know can take on your wealth and not inflate it away then for him that's bitcoin a lot of the things that he has been speaking about in that virtual lunch you can find on youtube or you know there's a couple of he's he gave a fantastic interview with raul paul on real vision there's an interview he gave with Hedgeye on Hedgeye TV with Mr. McCullough. So there, I think you can you can watch them and you can get get the spin of what he thinks. But it, it was highly enjoyable. And you touched on inflation. I mean, what 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 I agree with is that, and many people have said this that this CPI based inflation basket that the U.S. is using or the consumer price index that we're using here in Germany. This is not my basket. And I haven't really met anyone whose basket that is. It is some basket and they're putting your iPhone in there and your Netflix subscription and all of that tech stuff, which of course doesn't you know, rise in price. I mean, that's just getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So no inflation shows up. But asset price inflation, which is clearly something that we have seen in recent years, look at the bond markets, look at the equity markets, look at the property markets around the world, right? Assets are part of that basket. Why is it just consumer price index? Why does it just have to do with what it is that you have to consume? Why doesn't asset price inflation play a role in that? Because a lot of people depend on their assets, for instance, to provide an income, right? It is now much more difficult to make yield, generate yield to, for instance, pay for your retirement, than it has been 20 years ago. But that doesn't show up in inflation numbers. To get the same amount of, I mean, now we're talking negative numbers, right? But to get the same amount of interest when, when yields are 
compared to when they were 6%, you have to invest substantially more and buy substantially more bonds, right? Which comes out of your own pocket. You have to come up with that money. But strangely, these type of components, they um, they miss in these inflation projections. So, and, and these baskets. So I think inflation is here. It is not something that, you know, is uh, is out there in the future. I think inflation is among us since uh, many, many years, but it's not reported correctly. This is my opinion. And the more I think there is a increasing number of people that get that, that feel it, and they're looking for a way out. And they're also losing the, you know, I don't want to say faith, but, you know, it's kind of like this petrodollar system that we're in. They realize that essentially all the stuff that you own, your bond, your equities, your property, that's all denominated in fiat. That's all denominated in euros or US dollars, right? The stability of which you cannot forecast. I mean, history has shown that those currencies don't survive. So therefore, again, from a trader's perspective, does it make sense to put some of your money and have some exposure to Bitcoin? Oh, yes. Just, you know, from that from that argument alone, it does make a lot of sense. You know, I can only recommend that people um, watch what he has to say. Whether you whether you swing around and you agree with him, it you know that that's up to you. Everybody you know is welcome to have their own view. I'm not. I don't want to instill my view and on anyone. I'm just you know putting it out there. What 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 I think. Uh, I don't have all my assets in Bitcoin by far. Not right. I just said that you know I have the trade on, and I think it's a good trade to have on. And by the way. This is something that I, you know, brings me back to the trend following world because we did do a trade that we spoke about on twoquants.com this week. It's a Bitcoin cash and carry trade. So there's a market now developing for Bitcoin. There's a yield curve that has been established now for Bitcoin and for Ether, which I think is fantastic, right? Because it just goes to show that these markets are really maturing. You're seeing a yield curve in these markets, which didn't exist before. There is a lending and a repo market. There is an institutional custody market. Firms such as BlockFi, they just come out with a credit card that pays rewards points uh, back in Bitcoin. There's another one called Fold that pays 4% rewards in Bitcoin in Satoshis. So this market is developing and institutionalizing and moving forward at such a rapid pace that it's, it's really remarkable. Now, looking at that yield curve, what it allows you to do is, you know, to if, if you have a long holding in spot Bitcoin, you have it in your wallet, you have it in custody, wherever you hold your Bitcoin, right? Then you can look at the CME futures contract or you can look at the backed futures contract. There's two futures contracts uh, on, on Bitcoin with a CME being the substantially more liquid one. And then you can see, you know, where that futures contract trades and what the implied funding basis is, right? So, so to what extent does the futures contract trade higher than spot? And when you do the numbers, then on Tuesday last week, you would have found out that the basis has again been 35% annualized. You know, at some points when we did the first, the first time we did that trade in late May, the basis was about 55, 0% annualized. Then it came back down to 20, it came back down to 15, you know, traded as low as 10. And now as, you know, the Bitcoin, you know, there was a lot of a lot of upside pressure on spot Bitcoin in, in recent weeks. And that basis has therefore widened again. And at a level of 35%, you know, we just couldn't resist because it is, you're, you're, you know, you have your spot Bitcoin and you're selling a futures contract against that. 
and you're making 35% a year. And of course, there is some things that you have to be careful about, right? Because of course, you have to margin your CME Bitcoin futures contract. And if that contract doubles in price, which, you know, Bitcoin goes from twenty dollars to $40,000, uh, maybe it does. I mean, the thing can do that. Remember December of 2017, where, you know, the it essentially makes 100% in a month. So yes, Bitcoin can make 100% in a month, right? So you have to be able to stay in the trade and uh, and come up with the money to margin your um, CME futures contract. But if you size it correctly, right? And it's it's always about the sizing with everything that we do. If you size it correctly, then you can size it in such a way that you're very likely to, you know, hold on to the position. And then it's, it's a great trade. You're facing the CME. I'm facing the CME with my E-minis. I have no problem facing the CME on Bitcoin futures, not, not in the slightest. And I'm holding spot Bitcoin, which I do anyways. And the way I hold the spot Bitcoin is, yeah, and it's, it's in cold storage. Uh, there are so many very good solutions now, how you can, multi-signature solutions, how you can hold um, spot Bitcoin in a, I think, very secure way. And here's a trade that makes 35% a year. And, you know, when I do these trades, I kind of like, I wonder, why do I actually do all these other trades? You know, the canola and emissions and long corn and, you know, long soybeans and short crude and, and all that stuff, which, you know, is good. But it kind of like pales compared to that trade. You can just do that one trade and have a fantastic performance, which is one of the reasons, of course, all these digital um, crypto hedge funds, they do that trade and many others. And when you look at their numbers, um, they don't even have down month. I mean, they have sharp ratios of north and five, north and six, north and seven, because this market yields so many opportunities, right? It's just absolutely fascinating. And it, like I said, because it is becoming larger, more than $300 billion just in Bitcoin, and because there is an institutional part, I don't want to say participation, but there's an institutional infrastructure developing. There's a yield curve that's now existing. There's firms that do lending, et cetera, et cetera it becomes a proper market that you can access. And, you know, we spoke about what do you do with your access cash with your broker? You can put your access, you can leave your access cash and access cash and your broker pays you or your custodian bank pays you overnight, minus 20, minus 30, minus 50, whatever, depending on your broker, minus, minus 100% on the cash, right? So you're losing between 20 basis points and say 1% per year or you don't do that and you go into treasury bills, or you don't do that and you go into munis or other short-dated um, security debt products, which is kind of like the modus operandi and the default thing that CTAs do. And I don't want to say that that is wrong because it's liquid. And like you said, Niels, it's very important that you know the CTAs, they can be there, they can retain their daily liquidity. But this basis trade is liquid. You know, there's exchange-traded products here in Europe not in, I mean, in the US, you have Crayscale, the Bitcoin Trust, which trades at a massive premium to spot, right? And the SEC is uh, reluctant to approve an ETF in the United States. Gemini is trying, the Winklevi twins are trying, every, you know, many other ones are trying. But here in Europe, for once, in Switzerland, in Switzerland, by the way, especially, Switzerland is very open to crypto. But for once, Germany isn't all that uh, reserved on it, right? So we have Baffin approved exchange-traded products that don't trade with any tracking error and they just track Bitcoin and they're there. There's one out of Sweden that's more than a billion in AUM. So this is not small. This is absolutely not small. 
And you can trade them on the exchange. You have a security that has daily liquidity, or you can you know, buy the spot Bitcoin and do that futures contract. That is as liquid as your muni bond. And it is not riskier, in my opinion, than having a municipality exposure or anything like that. And from a risk-reward perspective, the one pays negative yield or zero, and the other pays 35, at least mix it a little bit, right? And, you know, I'm not saying that you need to do that trade with 100% of your free cash. In fact, I don't think anybody should, because like I said, the futures contract can go against you and that may cause cash flow problems. But with a portion of your money, of course. Well, with that being said, I think we'll leave our Bitcoin discussion for today <laughs> on that note. Uh, maybe, maybe it will come up again. I'm sure as people know, I um, I think it's fine. I think Bitcoin on a futures exchange, I can see it can have a value in a CTA portfolio. I have other reservations about Bitcoin not because I think it's it, it couldn't go much higher. I'm not arguing where the price might go. I just don't like the narrative and the way, it, in my view, it's being manipulated by some people. It, but that's the way it is. Yeah. Cool. Let's move on to a trend following question from uh, Fernando. Fernando writes from Toronto, Canada. He says, I've been researching, designing, and trading trend-following systems since 2016 and would like you to consider a couple of questions for your podcast. First, how have your views on position sizing evolved over the years? Do you guys stick to the traditional risk budgeting approach, i.e. Jerry Parker and other CTAs, or is there anything else to it? Also, I'm wondering whether today's availability of more markets to be tracked influences position sizing one way or another. Second question, what are your thoughts on how to manage drawdowns? Stressful veterans such as Ed Sakota seem to focus solely on trailing stops, which certainly help, yet may not be good enough for some money managers and clients alike. All right. Any thoughts on um, whether have you, ch so in other words, have you changed the way you think about position sizing, Moritz, over the years? And do you think that the fact that there are more markets, and you maybe touched upon it a little bit about the noise in the markets and so on and so forth, whether that has had an influence? I haven't changed my position sizing methodology in a long, long, long time. I think I've only changed it once. I mean, this is now 20 years or close to 20 years ago. I think, you know, when I first started looking at these systems at the, the very first iteration of my trend following trading system, if I even remember that correctly, didn't have an ATR based, you know, position sizing or like a risk based position sizing methodology where I say like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to risk a certain percent of my equity at the point of trade entry and then have a trading stop after that. So stop loss and then trailing stop exit. But I think I, I changed that very, very quickly. And ever since I'm I'm really sticking to the same procedure, which which I like. I love it. I haven't seen anything that's better than that because it defines my risk. I know where I get in, I know where I have to get out. So I know already today when I take on the position what my risk is and where I will exit the trade, it's all very defined. I do it the same way across all the markets. It normalizes my losses. That is, to me, the best way of doing it, and I haven't changed it. So this is this is it. 
Cool. Before we jo- jump to the thing about the drawdowns, let me add a few things to that question, uh, Fernando. So, uh, first of all, um, there's, so there's two things I should talk about. So, at Dunn, we do things differently because we have a risk budget and we don't use stops in the way we manage our position. So we do it differently, a little bit like what I'm going to talk about in a second, uh, something that Rob came back with in terms of a blog post inspired by a discussion we had a few weeks ago on the podcast. But I also, and I've mentioned this a little bit, and I talk about it not as often maybe as as, as I should, but from my previous uh, life, um, I have my own trend-following system, which is much more similar to what Moritz is doing. So it's kind of, I would say, a very classical trend-following system, which is having a great year this year, up 30%, I think, so far. And I still run it every day uh, just to keep an eye on uh, how that's going. And and for that, it is using a very classical volatility parity in terms of uh, position sizing and, and using stops and, and all of those good things that uh, Moritz is also doing. Probably we do it differently, but in any ways, in any ways um, a very similar way. And this is something that I may in the future talk more about or maybe publish in one way or, or the other how that particular system is doing. But but I think I want to just touch on what 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 Rob was writing and, and, and I don't think Moritz has had the chance to read the post, but I think Rob touches on another way of of thinking about exposure and that's kind of also how we think about it at, at done. And that is we don't really think about individual trades. We think about what exposure do I want to have at to this market today? And so that might made up, be made up by, by many different types of signals, but it basically we want to just to, to uh, express the exposure we want to a market on a daily basis. So for that, you could say it's a different way of thinking about it because it doesn't involve specific stop losses, et cetera, et cetera. So it's more of a continuous exposure uh, methodology. And, and for that, of course, it's different. I know Rob argues uh, on his blog for um, the way he does things versus the way um, maybe Moritz or, or, or my own system does it. But either way, I think that this year has shown that even when it comes to trend following, different types of trend following will yield different returns. And um, a system that might do well uh, over certain periods may be certainly um, inferior to another way of doing uh, trend following like the old classical way, which at least in, in my view this year, I think some of the more uh, binary systems where you're either long or short kind of thing seems to have done better. But that's just my view on that. And then uh, Fernando goes on to ask about how to manage drawdowns. First of all, yeah, I mean, drawdowns are painful. They um, Either they can be painful because they're really steep and deep, or they can be painful because they're long and boring. And of course, you can have, sometimes you even get both, which is a real pain. I think that the way to think about drawdowns, and of course, one thing is for your own money, right? You, we can we can kind of uh, think about it in one way, but it doesn't mean that our clients will will agree and think about it in the same terms. But one way of thinking about it is that drawdowns are really the price we and and drawdowns is just because we focus so much on you know how far are we from the last 
all-time high. I mean, a lot of investment types don't even think about it that way. But when you do, you often find yourself in a in some kind of drawdown. And, and CTAs definitely fits that category where you could say that you are probably in a drawdown 95% of the time, frankly, even though we still make new all-time highs over the long run and, and make good money for our clients, we spend 95% of the 95% of the time in a some uh, some kind of drawdown. Which by incidentally, I once saw an article not that long ago that talked about certain amazing equities that had had massive returns if you just look at their price appreciation. But if you looked at them in terms of how often they were below their all-time high, most recent all-time high, that was also in the 90s percent. It's just that when they had their big up moves, they had massive up moves that created this extraordinary performance over time. But I think that um, I think you have to think about the drawdowns as the price you have to pay in order to make those returns. And even if a year like this year, where both um, what Morrison do, is doing and what we're doing, you know, we're below zero, we're, we're losing a little bit of money this year. First of all, it's just one year. It's not so bad. Generally speaking, last year was a better year than, than this year is a bad year. So it just comes and goes. And the way I like to think about it is if, and, and that is if I continue to follow a disciplined investment process, do I think that in 10 years time, in 20 years time, in 30 years time, the portfolio will be worth a lot more. And 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 all the evidence that I have suggests that it will, but it doesn't mean that it's going to go in a straight line. And so that's why I think trend following is, is such a strong strategy to have on your team, not the only strategy you, you want on your team, but it should be it should be one of them. Uh, I'm a big believer of diversification, both inside and outside the trend-following portion of your portfolio. But I know it's not easy always to, it's not always easy to get external investors who don't, who are not able to see uh, underneath the hood, inside the engine room, and get them to have the same level of confidence in um, in 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 a strategy like this because it is difficult to hold on to. But that's our job and that's what we need to do to guide them in order to get the best possible chance for them to benefit from long-term returns. I mean, it's a little bit the same as saying, well, what if equity investors had sold out of all their equities in 2009, you know, after nine years of being in a drawdown since the peak in 2000? Wouldn't that have been a shame? Well, it's exactly the same with trend following. Even though we've gone through a five-year period where most of us, frankly, haven't made any money. But, you know, we haven't lost any money either. So uh, compared to being down for eight or nine years in equities, this is not too bad. It's just that everybody compares us right now to the roaring equity markets. But what you should rather do is just look at what a portfolio of 50% equities and 50% trend following would look like over the years instead of just looking at the individual components all the time. Just look at that combined portfolio. And that is, by the way, also making new all-time highs. Of course, right now, driven by the equities. But back in March, when a lot of us were up 5 or 7% and equities were down 25%, you really liked the fact that you had some exposure to something that didn't correlate with that. So anyways, that was a long-winded answer, Moritz. Sorry about that. Anything you want to no, add to No, I think this? you've uh, phrased it perfectly. I, uh, I don't have anything to add there. 
All right. Well, before we jump to this um, super exciting section where we're going to reveal what podcast or anything of interest we've come across, I do want to throw in just to uh, do what we always do, what has uh, happened uh, in terms of the indices we track. The BTOP50 index up another percent so far in December, up almost 2% for the year now. Nice to see it back in the black. The Sotkin CT index also up about a percent uh, so far in December, still down a little bit for the year, down 1.25. The trend index is up another 1.29% so far in December, and it's also now back in the black for the year 2020, up 1%. And the Sotkin short-term traders index up about half a percent so far and up almost 3% for the year. So still doing better than the longer-term guys. And I think we all know why that is given the market action this year. Risk Premier, on the other hand, not doing so well, down a quarter percent in December and down almost 16% now for the year, even though that's one of those strategies that investors have loved over the years. Of course, this is um, still hard to compete with uh, equities. Um, So MSCI, another 2% up so far in December, up almost 12% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is so far down 40 pips. As we talked about earlier, bonds did come under some pressure in the beginning of this month. So that's what it's reflecting. So now to the big reveal, Moritz. Other than virtual uh, breakfasts and lunches that you attend to, have you had any uh, insightful podcast or white paper experiences this week? No white papers. Well, no is is wrong. Maybe it's not a white white paper, but there's uh, been an article that I think... um written by a CTA that both you and I know. Maybe we can touch on that next week when we speak. But two podcasts that I remember. One, Chat with Traders, uh, interviewing Rishi Narang. Rishi Narang is a he's a quant. Uh, he's the author of Inside the Black Box, I think, is the book. Second two editions of that book, I think, are out. And um, so he spoke to, um, to Aaron Fifield on the Chat with Traders podcast about all things quantitative trading, not only the risk of overfitting, but also the risk of underfitting, which I found interesting. And, you know, coming back onto the Chinese markets that we spoke about earlier, he said, you know, they're making a lot of investments into Chinese or Asia-based quant investment managers, you know, StatArb, you know, these type of things. Why? Well, because there's more opportunities in these markets, in his opinion. I cannot prove that. I'm just um, you know, relaying what he has mentioned on that show. So that one I found interesting. And the other one I um and I've I I do not recall the show. Maybe it was TC Chart Cars. I need to look it up, but it was about Tesla. And you know, Tesla is in the same way that people speak about Bitcoin these days, they speak about Tesla because Tesla will be entering the S P five hundred in close to Christmas, I Shortly. think. Yeah. So, of course, you know, there's uh, all these uh, strategies out there that kind of like, you know, front run the inclusion of Tesla into the index and then dump the stock as soon as it is in the index. Tesla is approaching a price of 600 bucks a share, by the way. And so really, uh, the question is, what what is that thing? Is it a software company? Is it an automaker on wheels? Is it a software company on wheels? Is it a, a battery maker? Is it a carbon credit seller? Uh, as a battery producer, I, I don't know. But when you compare the the price of Tesla of Tesla to other automakers, it it certainly looks very, very, very different. 
in the past year, to say the very least. And so what is uh, interesting, and, and, and that came out, is that when Tesla is added to the S&P 500, it will increase the price earnings ratio of the index by a full six points. Only that one stock will increase the PE ratio of the S&P by about six. And this assumes that Tesla's PE is 500, even though it currently isn't 500, it currently is 1,000, right? So the PE ratio of the S&P 500 is going to be impacted in a massive way, absolutely massive way, by one single stock close to Christmas. And um, it's just fascinating. It's, you know, that that stock and, and Elon Musk and now becoming part of the S&P 500. I think Elon Musk came out yesterday or the day before. I don't remember where I snapped it up, but he was saying like something like, you know, uh, uh, we, we could see our nose bleeding, you know, I'm paraphrasing it, you know, once the S&P inclusion has been made and, and they may they may just get hammered. So let's see, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I'm not forecasting any of that, but it is a fascinating stock. It is, to me, the stock of 2020 is Tesla. Well, certainly I would say that and, and a few other uh, uh, stocks. But, but again, it goes back to this fact that what fundamental analysis would you be able to have done uh, a year or two ago that would come up with, anything like Tesla going to 600, including a stock split and all that stuff, right? Probably nothing Zero. of the sort. Zero. The only strategy that... Uh, there are two strategies that I can think of that would have gotten you into Tesla. One is related back to my uh, my midweek uh, publication of the podcast because Mahindra Sharma actually forecasted in back in the summer of 2018 that Tesla... If they survive financial uh, difficulties in July of 2018, that stock would become one of the most valuable stocks in the US. That's on record. Now, I'm not going to get into how he did that because people are going to be very divided about his method. But the other one I can think of, and we'll probably chat to Jerry about this when he comes on in a couple of weeks, that is trend following, right? Where you have absolutely no clue, and no predictive power and 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 fully embrace knowing what you don't know, but your breakout occurred or your moving averages crossed over or whatever it might be, and that just told you to be long Tesla for as long as or short as that held true. And uh, for those who did, congratulations. What a ride. So definitely, and the same, by the way, goes for Bitcoin. This is also why I'm not dismissing Bitcoin. I mean, I think you can trade it successfully, I don't think you can use. I, I don't know about these fundamental views about it, but 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 I think if you just follow the price, you'll be, you'll have some diversification in your portfolio. Anyways, for for me, I think my the episode that I I didn't listen to many episodes this week, but I always pay attention to uh, when our previous guest uh, Jesse Felder releases something. And this week it was with Keith McCulloch, who is the founder of Hedgeye, and uh, he's actually a person that divides opinions also quite uh, quite a lot some people you know don't like his at the way he approached things and and other people love it i thought it was interesting and informative to hear about his process which is quite you know relatively straightforward but but quite uh, interesting about how he defines 
and assess financial conditions and, and markets and so on and so forth. So I enjoyed that conversation. I thought that was a, a good time to spend on one of my uh, walks in the forest this week. So anyways, anything else, Moritz? We've gone a little bit over our usual allowed time budget. But no, that was a um, good, good podcast. Um, nothing else for me. Nothing else from you. Nothing else from me either. So from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we can't wait to be back with you next week. And in the meantime, be well and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.